Hi, this is Paul. Uh, John Verveke and Jordan Peterson sat down together not too long ago. I don't know exactly when. Had a conversation. I have not made it through the entire conversation yet. The, um, the Daily Wire conversation, again, is longer than the YouTube conversation. But it started out, John, describing a bunch of things they're catching up. It's very interesting because they had a previous conversation, which was just after Jordan Peterson was sort of making videos again, and that conversation was a little bit wild. And it's there's quite a bit of talk about how to sort of figure that conversation out. At the beginning of this conversation, I still noticed I've spoken with John a fair amount, and I've watched Jordan a ton. Um, it's interesting... I think partly because they have so much history together and they also have a personal relationship and in in some ways their personal when they were when they were both colleagues teaching at U of T they all everything they all they were sort of able to know each other and at this point I think in some ways they have to sort of figure who each other is again because Actually, they've both been in different spaces. John now has the Verveke Foundation. He continues to teach at University of Toronto. Jordan, of course, um, has been emeritized. There's a lot of questions about that. Um, and, and, of course, Jordan now has all of these other projects. Um, they've collaborated. John has a course in the Jordan Peterson. Uh, Jordan Peter, what does he call it? Uh, Jordan Peterson University, forget what it is. Um, John has a course in that. So they have continued to collaborate, but at the beginning of this video, it seems like they're both trying to figure out what their relationship is again, um, which which I think, and I, I just dipped into a few places a little later in the video, they kind of found each other and sort of settled in. And that's that's totally understandable given their history together, given all of the changes in both of their lives. Um, I'll probably dip into other sections of this video later on, but the first one that caught my eye was Jordan's first foray into his 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 religious project. Now, right before this, I saw that there was a, a an interview with Alex O'Connor with some YouTube channel I didn't know, and he was talking about Jordan Peterson. Would Jordan Peterson call himself religious, uh, how would Jordan answer that? It would probably depend on who's asking it and when and where. But Jordan is clearly continuing in his project that he has been working on for a very long time. Maps of Meaning comes out of it. And despite all of the political involvement, all of the, let's say, uh, civilizational involvement, he, he continues to try to uh, get a sense of, okay, what is what is religion? How does it function? And he approaches it as a psychologist would approach it. So let's jump into the conversation there. So, hey, so speaking, let's turn a bit from the practical to the, to the uh, intellectual. I've got an idea about the sacred that I want to run by you sure. technically. Well, now his use of the word technically is always interesting because it sort of points us to the fact that he's going to talk about this phenomenologically, psychologically, and, and this sort of gets at his ground up project. And he, he usually brackets these kinds of things by saying, I, 
I'm not going to, I want to sort of set the top down over here. And I just want to look at it from the ground up. I had a conversation with Malcolm and Simone again, which will probably be out in their channel in the next few days. But it's, a, it's very difficult for people to sort of understand sometimes what Jordan is about. And so a big part of what he's doing is trying to figure out religion from the bottom up. And that has a lot to do with, in modernity, there eventually was this split where anything that was eventually labeled supernatural, that's a fairly recent label, was sort of shoved off to the side, say, we can only talk about this down below. We can't talk about this above. So we're, we have to sort of build up enough to account for all of what we see in the world. Imagine that you have a hierarchy of thinkers such that this would exist over time. Okay. Such that some thinkers have more thinkers dependent on them than other thinkers. Sure. Right? So they're more... Okay, now I'm going to... I'm going to say this for those of you who are new to the channel. If you want to watch the thing all the way through, it's there on YouTube. Just watch it all the way through. I don't have a lot of time right now, so I'm going to basically make my comments interstitially. He's, he's building an argument about the construction of, let's say, the, the, the cultural psyche pass, um, package that individuals are delivered. In a culture, we inherit, and I'll use some of my own language, we inherit, we receive a first draft from our parents and the people around us and the people who formed us and our culture. And a tremendous amount of human civilization is built into this. If you go to his first conversation with Sam Harris, a lot of that conversation was about Jordan sort of trying to set the groundwork for an argument like this. So all of us have been deeply formed by our culture. We've not only been formed by our parents, but we were formed by what our parents received, which was from their parents, and on and on and on, generation after generation, far larger than their parents. We all have a way of approaching the world, which again, combinatorial explosiveness with respect to the world is sort of a foundational element of the conversation that has developed between Jordan Peterson, John Verveke, and Jonathan Peugeot, that the world is too large for us to take in. And so what happens pre-consciously for us is that we have filters and we filter out the world. There's some things we see and there's some things we don't. One of these days I'll do another video on Homath, but one of the one of the interesting points that Homath made is that People actually don't see other people in a room. They will notice some people and not see other people. And if you think about this in terms of your memory, you'll find that it's true. That we have this filter. And I often use the example of my messy office. When I walk into my office, if anything is different or out of place or on my mind when I walk into my office, I see that, but I don't see the rest. I also use the example of a friend of mine a number of years ago who had very low vision and he was legally blind, but he had some vision. And he used to describe to me how it's like seeing through a, a, a paper towel tube. That's all he would see. But now in his mind, phenomenologically, he would see like we see, because he didn't lose that necessarily. It's just he didn't see what was there. So if I would walk up 
to him quietly, sort of from the side. I would sort of pop into his field of view, sort of like if you go all the way back to I Dream of Jeannie when she would blink in and blink out of the picture, I would pop into the picture and it would startle him because he didn't see me. And then once he knew I was there, his mind sort of filled in the rest of the field of view. So we have a filter that is not only built up within us over our short lifetimes, but is actually contributed to by generations of people in terms of what we see and what we do not see. This stands in direct contradiction to older forms of theories of knowledge and sensation where we imagine that we are just blank receivers and we see whatever's in the room. Now, that's sort of a common sense philosophy, but we now know it isn't true. And so some men will say, women don't see me. Some women will say, men don't see me. And to a degree, they're right. And one of the great examples that Jordan Peterson gave us early on, you can go all the way back to his Maps of Meaning, he points to a video where he's there's a group of people passing a basketball and you're asked to count how many times the basketball is passed. And in the middle of the video, somebody in a gorilla costume comes out right into the middle of the video, does a little clowning around and leaves. And most people who watch the video who are trying to count the passes of the basketball never see the gorilla. They don't see the gorilla. Now, that's just sort of a simple psychological experiment. But when you think about this generationally, civilizationally, what we see is the product of the decisions of many, many generations of cultural ancestors. And so now he's going to make an argument about citations, and that is, in a sense, things that are seen in the realm of knowledge. Another video you can watch, as if YouTube is somehow lacking for videos you can watch, Alex O'Connor exposes the weaknesses of Richard Dawkins and Glenn Scrivener reacts. Glenn does a nice job in this video of showing that when, for example, Richard Dawkins is talking about truth claims, he's talking about a certain kind of thing that lives in a particular imaginary. Now, I might have a truth claim that um, dark chocolate is better than milk chocolate. And a lot of people say, well, that's not a truth claim. That's just a, that's just, you're just expressing a preference. It is a truth claim to the degree that Paul likes dark chocolate better than milk chocolate. Well, okay. The difficulty that you have with this is we tend to say, okay, here's, here are these truth claims, but which truth claims are actually the relevant ones for a culture. And in many ways, what religions are, are the multi-generational selection of what truth claims are relevant. Now, part of what happens in late modernity is that we say, this little box here are the relevant truth claims, such as H2O equals water. And so there's a, there's a correspondence between the formula and water. Now, in many cases with these kinds of truth claims, they're generally true. They're true enough. You can find H2O2 and say, that's water. Well, sometimes we call it heavy water. Oh, okay. So is H2O water or not? 
Well, yes. Okay, is H2O2 water? Well, yeah, I better check that fact myself. No, some chemist out there would call me out because it's H2O2 is hydrogen peroxide. Let me find out what heavy water is. <laughs> heavy water is 2H2O2, or D2O is a form of water whose hydrogen atoms are all deuterium rather than the common hydrogen isotope that makes up most of the hydrogen in normal water. The presence of heavy hydrogen isotope gives the water different nuclear properties and the increase of mass gives it slightly different physical and chemical properties when compared to normal water. So, is it water? Well, it's heavy water. Okay, but is it water? Well, and suddenly you're, you're debating those little points. Well, part of the difficulty here is that all of these truth claims sort of live up in a little universe up here. You don't find truth claims out on the ground. You don't see them with your eyes. They're not part of the natural world. It's not like you're walking through the forest and you stumble on a truth claim. You might stumble on a stone and it might claim that the stone is there and the stone is hard and it hurts your toe. But the stone itself is not a truth claim. A truth claim is something over here. And so we have this entire structure where we say, well, the problem I have with religions is the truth claims. Oh, actually, probably the problem you have with religions are the priorities that have been inherited, that have developed the seeing that has created the world and all of the interpersonal reaction realities, which are not, again, physical realities, and... Those are probably what you have problems with because most of the time, you know, even if you go back to Alex O'Connor just recently did a video with with Chris Williamson and the title of the video was basically about it. Well, we're going to we're afraid we're going to lose morality. Well, what on earth is morality? Well, morality is sort of all of these civilizational multi-generational practices that have come to us that we have picked up unwittingly from our parents. Our parents didn't sort of teach these one by one. We picked them up without even knowing. And in fact, they're so deeply part of us, we probably don't even know their hat. We have them until something comes up and we realize, oh, I think it's right to do things this way. You think it's right to do things another way. Now, if this is sort of a small thing that doesn't matter, it might make for an interesting conversation between two friends or, let's say, two people who decided to get married and they discovered, oh, somebody sees the world differently than I do in a very close way. But what, what about if sort of civilizationally it's different? Well, then you have, then you realize that, oh, I've been carrying expectations and someone who hasn't fulfilled my expectations well, I'm deeply hurt. Seminal, right? Mm -hmm. You'd get a rough approximation that exists over things. Imagine that you have a hierarchy of thinkers such that this would exist over time. Okay. Such that some thinkers have more thinkers dependent on them than other thinkers. Sure. Right. So Okay, so you have a hierarchy, so all of these things have been carried forward by thinkers. And some thinkers have been more, let's use the word, influential than other thinkers. And you can figure out who has been most influential by, let's say, citations in scientific journals. They're more seminal, mm -hmm. right? You'd get a rough approximation of that with citation counts in the scientific endeavor. 
And citation counts are a pretty good index of quality as well as quantity, at least compared to every other index that we have. So, can so he recognizes right there that quality indexes are very fraught. Why are they fraught? Because what we're talking about isn't sort of ideas we have up here in the ether. What we're talking about are things that are so built into us and close to us that we have expectations and ideas about them that mm, we can get upset about if they're not met. Um, there's a lot of things going on with this, but we'll, we'll just sort of keep it at arm's length in a safe space when we're talking about um, scientific papers and things like this. Imagine a dependency structure among thinkers so that obviously a thinker like Milton would be of primary depth. Mm -hmm. We can make an argument with someone like Augustine, okay? So one of the ways to sort of understand Latin Christianity and Eastern Christianity is Augustine. And, and sometimes you'll hear especially Orthodox theologians really having a problem with Augustine. But you find Augustine is really foundational in the Latin church, both Protestants and Catholics. Uh, Catholics will regularly cite Augustine with appreciation. Protestants will regularly cite Augustine with appreciation. Uh, uh, reformed people will look at Augustine and then Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, and then Calvin, who sort of, they sort of follow in line with Augustine. But when you come to Eastern, Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity, Augustine then becomes kind of a, a, a question because at some very low levels, other people took issue with some of what Augustine said and when he said them. And so up from here grows trees of knowledge and information. And Shakespeare, the, the people who are part of the canon. And so rather than conceptualizing the canon as a consequence of the arbitrary decisions of arbiters of taste, let's say, you could say that the canon is the consequence of the cumulative impact of a thinker's thoughts moving forward. And now, for a very long time, right from when I saw Jordan Peterson first talking about the Bible on stage in Toronto, there was the question, why is he talking about the Bible? And the more I listened to him, the more I began to appreciate that he would often say that he's Darwinian and that he approached texts. He approached this filter that grew up within us in a Darwinian way. And so what he's actually doing right here, he's, he's unpacking sort of a Darwinian justification of the Bible. Now, this has nothing to do with Darwin. And in fact, he's also in some ways borrowing from Richard Dawkins because Dawkins basically made the argument that memetics in some ways, that's upper register, memetics in some ways work like genes. And so basically what Jordan is saying is that when you have something like the Bible, the biblical canon, so much is tied down to that that it becomes super foundational at very low levels that are pre-conscious to us in terms of our formation of the world. And some thinkers are more key than others. Um, consequence of the cumulative impact of a thinker's thoughts moving forward. And some thinkers are more key than others. Now, this is even true of the Bible. 
Because if you do something, when I say the Bible, I'm a Christian minister, I'm a Protestant Christian minister, so I'm speaking about the, 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 the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are other books that are quoted in the New Testament, but even if you use Jordan Peterson's citation measure, there are certain Psalms like Psalm 110 that are quoted again and again and again in the New Testament. Now, there are passages that are quoted multiple times in the New Testament. Then there are other parts of the Old Testament that aren't quoted hardly at all. So you even see this dynamic within the Bible. And so canons aren't, and I began to recognize this, especially once I became a minister, the canon isn't really sort of a flat place, although you sort of treat it like that. The whole thing's canon, and that's actually a good thing. There's a hierarchy within the canon that, that people point to. And many people, let's say, who maybe don't know the Bible well at all, their canon might include the 23rd Psalm, might include John 3.16, might include uh, Genesis 1 or Genesis 3, certain passages that many, many more people know than other passages on down the way, partly because of this dynamic that Jordan is pointing to. Um, my sense, for example, and there's historical reasons for this, obviously, that the biblical corpus stands at the bottom of the Western canon, and then there are thinkers who, are, who have their foot, feet placed firmly in that tradition, Dante, Milton, Shakespeare, etc., and then a, a branching structure mm. above all that. Okay. So. Now, some would argue that Jordan Peterson is here to save Western civilization. One might argue that the biggest threat to Western civilization might not be all of the sort of things that we think about. It might be, let's say, the loss of broadly based biblical knowledge. Why? Because if you don't understand what's in the Bible, you're going to have trouble understanding Shakespeare and Milton and Dante. And if you don't understand what's in the Bible and you don't understand Shakespeare and Milton and Dante, well, it just keeps deteriorating all the way up or all the way down, whichever way you're sort of conceiving it. Now, part of what has sort of saved things is that um, a lot of churches, at least, even Protestant churches that hadn't, haven't tended to talk a lot about Dante or Milton or Shakespeare, they still teach the Bible. And so once you sort of get that foundational level, well, suddenly when it comes time or when you bump into Shakespeare or Dante or Milton, at least you've got to start. But if you don't have that biblical knowledge at all, you don't have, it's going to be really hard to sort of appropriate it, even though, and I think Glenn, Glenn talks about these um, these in a lot of helpful ways, even though a lot of people sort of inherit the leaves, it's really good to have the roots that sort of grow up from there. So it's a matter of dependency. And so how fundamental a given thought is, is dependent on how many other thoughts are dependent on it for its validity. Okay, now this works out neuropsychologically too. Okay, now... Here's a key thing. It's dependent on it, on it for its validity. Depending on how, sort of what mindset you're in, if you're thinking sort of with Richard Dawkins and up here in his truth claims, um, you might look at the Bible and when you're asking questions of validity, 
you might be very concerned in physical correspondence. How big was Noah's flood? Uh, where was Jesus' body Easter Sunday morning? Um, how much bread and fish did Jesus distribute on that hillside out of Galilee? That's for Richard Dawkins and all this little mysterious universe of truth claims. Those are the questions he's interested in. Jordan's not really interested in that. Because what Jordan is pointing to is a psychological wholeness. Because we're going to talk about trauma in a minute. And trauma has sort of become, it's the new self-esteem. Why is trauma the new self-esteem? Because 20 years ago, everybody, every pop psychologist was talking self-esteem, self-esteem, self-esteem. I remember the first live Jordan Peterson event I went to in San Francisco, the guy on stage interviewing Jordan, most of us in the audience had heard a lot more Jordan than this guy because when he starts asking a question, I think he at that one he said something you know, affirmative about self-esteem and a bunch of us were like, we know what Jordan thinks of that whole thing. Um, but... Trauma is the new self-esteem. So now all pipe psychology, they, they, everything's about trauma and avoiding trauma. Okay. And so then for many people, trauma is this self-evident thing, sort of like I have my skin and a knife would come along and cut me. That would be trauma to my skin. Most of the time we're talking about trauma. We're not talking about things like that. We're talking about, let's say, a parent's divorce. Let's say uh betrayal in a marriage. We're talking about relational trauma. We're talking about someone doing something that broke a set of expectations and a moral code that we had for them that we might not have even recognized that we had for them. It might be shared by a large group of people or it might not be shared by a large group of people, but that's what we're usually talking about with respect to trauma. So now when he's talking about validation, he's really talking about the weaving together of an entire worldview and a picture of life. So imagine a given thought is, is dependent on how many other thoughts are dependent on it for its validity. Okay, now this works out neuropsychologically. How many thoughts are dependent on it for its validity? In other words, how, now we're thinking about thoughts as things, thoughts really aren't quite that discreet. We like to think of them in that way so we can manipulate them because we're used to manipulating things like this. But how many thoughts are dependent on that for sort of the seamless whole of the world, similar to my friend who had low vision and where he would see the world in front of him, even though part of him knew full well he was only looking through a paper towel tube? Me too. Or dental a given thought is is dependent on how many other thoughts are dependent on it for its validity. Okay, now this works out neuropsychologically too. So imagine that you have a Janoff Bowman who talked about trauma has a theory that's analogous to this and I think it fits in well with the entropy control theories of Friston. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then imagine that your perceptions and therefore your emotional regulation are dependent upon a nested sequence of assumptions Okay, right there. Slow it down. Because he and, he and John are talking. And so these two talking about this stuff, it's like me sitting down with someone else in the Christian Reform Church and we're talking about stuff in our church. It's just a, all these little shorthand things. But the rest of us are overhearing and we're thinking, 
Ooh, what, what, what did he just say? Now, we've, we've introduced the, the sense of trauma, and then there's entropy psychologically, which is different from entropy physically. But it's a sense of well-being and comfort that the world is as it should be. And what he's introduced already is that we've all received this first draft. And the world is as it should be if it's like that first draft more or less, depending on the household that you grew up. And all of this is sort of dependent on other things. And again, it goes multi-generationally. So maybe you've never read the Bible. Maybe you've never understood anything from the Bible. Maybe you've never thought about this, but your ancestors have been formed by that book. And so your ideas of good, bad, right, and wrong, your ideas of morality, your ideas of the way that the, sh the world should be goes all the way back to that book, even if you've never read it. You just think it's self-evident. Well, it's self-evident because you absorb that as a child, and it's the only world you know. So to this, and I think it fits in well with the entropy control theories of Friston. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then imagine that your perceptions and therefore your emotional regulation are dependent upon a nested sequence of assumptions. Your perceptions, what you see, and your emotional regulation, how whether you feel that everything is in order, you're, you're calm, you feel good about the world, you're not too anxious, all of those things, these are all nested on these assumptions. The, and a given phenomenon can violate an assumption, and the degree of entropy that's produced by the assumption. Okay, a given phenomenon can violate that assumption. Something happens, and you say, that's just wrong. You might go to the internet. You might have a YouTube channel, and you might say, what he did was wrong. Something violated your sense of assumption. Mm. And you say, it's just wrong. I just know it. It's self-evident. Now, when you start talking about it, other people might listen to it and think, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, maybe I don't want to be the judge. It doesn't really hurt me. I have not been dysregulated by certain sets of assumptions, and so I'm just going to move on with my life and know that this person is sort of having a little dramatic moment and will leave him to his own dramatic moment. But suddenly, collectively, when this happens, well, then... If, it's, if it triggers a lot of other people, but again, think about this. It's sort of a built up like this. And so depending on how very low it goes into the, in that network of assumptions all the way down to the founding documents who have formed societies and built that intergenerational picture, well, then a whole lot of people are going to be upset. And then a whole lot of people are going to react. You can think about 9-11. You can think about Pearl Harbor. Um, you can think about all sorts of things that you have this welling up. And people, people don't sit down and talk about it. And if you go to a clinical psychologist, you might sit there and you might do psychoanalysis and try to figure it out, yada, 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 yada. But as a group, no, there's no psychoanalysis, just whoosh. There it is. Everybody reacts. So say we all. This is wrong. It's from a foundational text. ...violation is proportionate to the day, and a given phenomenon can violate an assumption, 
and the degree of entropy that's produced by the assumption violation is proportionate to the depth of the assumption. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, And the reaction given by the people will be proportionate too. But it's going to be, for, for again, for individuals, it's going to be proportionate, probably a little more shallow, probably going to have a lot to do with their situation growing up as a child, let's say, because all this stuff is formed pretty early. But when you see a whole group of people responding, well, then it probably goes deeper. Janoff Bowman talks about, for example, her model of trauma is shattered assumption, the deeper the assumption. So, for example, one way you can be traumatized in a marital relationship is through the discovery of infidelity. Yeah, yeah. Great. Your, your hyperpriors get destroyed. Yeah. So what do you call them? Ah, uh, this is this is where John Verveke continues to shine. He brings us language. Your hyperpriors. Oh, what up? What up? And now it's not from him. He'll footnote it because John always footnotes too. Hyper priors. Because your priors might be, this upset me because, and then again, if you go into Freudian analysis or something, you might dig this up and discover things about your childhood and yada, yada, yada. That might be just you. But your hyper priors, these go down deeper. Hyper priors. One way you can be traumatized in a marital relationship is through the discovery of infidelity. Yeah, yeah. Right. Your, your hyperpriors get destroyed. Yeah, so what do you call them? Hyperpriors in the Bayesian brain framework, in Friston's framework, the, the sort of priors that you use to yeah. run any of the Bayesian approximation. I actually don't like using the Bayesian math because you don't actually run the math. You run uh, a dynamical system approximation, but that's how they talk about it in the literature. Uh, these, yeah. are, these are sort of your most... Prof these are the things that are... Uh, applied in your predictive modeling in the most context invariant manner. So they again slow that down. Applied in your predictive modeling in the most height in most. Let me hear what he said again. Yeah. Uh, these yeah. are these are sort of your most. Prof these are the things that are uh, applied in your predictive modeling in the most context invariant manner. So they in the most context invariant matter so these are deep assumptions that we carry into many different contexts yeah context. right context invariant right yeah, right yeah. well that's another way of thinking about it too is that something more fundamental applies across more situations and time spans mm -hmm. right okay okay so here's a secondary so okay so if you have someone that tends to let's say always get angry when their expectations aren't met and they use all sorts of language that most of us usually only reserve for pretty dramatic things. That tells you something about it. And usually if you're a pastor or a psychologist or, or maybe even just a wise person who's been around groups of people for a while and you just know that yeah, they're going to, in the church, let's say, well, they're going to pop off over this. And you just you, you you pay it you watch it happen two or three times and just kind of keep it in the back of your head, and then this is this predictive stuff and then something happens and you think you've sort of they've sort of you sort of take up in your brain you have a little model of them in your brain and all of that data sort of goes into the model in the brain and you just sort of know oh yeah and you say it and you think uh, yeah 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 I bet you. I betcha. 
pastors have this, and, and there's an old saying with pastors, and, and I've, I've experienced this. In fact, the, the entire thing, um, someone comes into church for the first time and they sit towards the front and, you know, they're, okay, they're looking for a new church. Why are they looking for a new church? Well, they probably had something going on in their life and something's broken. And so they've sort of been ripped out of whatever Christian community they're in, or maybe not a Christian community they don't know. So they sit up towards the front and you preach a sermon. You can preach it just about anything. It might not even be a particularly good sermon, but then they're sitting there weeping and crying. So, okay, I'm going to go, go talk to them because they're weeping and crying. Obviously, something's done, something deep in them has been touched. Part of the things that you, that you begin to learn over time is that, well, people don't really see you too often. They're usually projecting a ton onto you. And once you figure that out, you learn, eh, i got to be kind of careful around these people because you know what? They're projecting a ton onto me, which means this is going to go down. This is going to be deep. So then... So then they, you know, then first, first when they meet you, they butter you up. Oh, this is, this is exactly what I've, this is exactly what I've been looking for. I don't know why this church isn't a mega church pastor. That was the most amazing sermon I've ever heard. Yada, yada, yada. Now, again, sometimes people will say things like that and that's all fine, well, and good. But what happens when you're a pastor is when this happens, you just pause. You just kind of, so you've already established your little model of them in the back of your mind. And after you sort of have a matrix of this, you began to put a little flag on them and say, you know what, keep your eye on this person because they've put you on a pedestal. And probably part of the reason they put you on the pedestal is because they're going to knock you off it. And again, this might have nothing to do with me or with you or with anyone else. This has everything to do with this whole matrix of wholeness and wellness. So then when months or years later something happens and you've somehow... Um, not fulfilled one of their expectations. Bang! Oh. But, of course, you our, our matrix inside of us, we want our outside networks to look like our matrix inside of us, and so we try to colonize each other with our perspectives about different individuals, and that's sort of how the whole social game is, is played. Consequence of that, another way of thinking about it, too, is that something more fundamental applies across more situations and time spans, mm -hmm. right? Okay, okay, so here's a secondary consequence of that, I think. So then imagine that the degree to which you can handle entropy emerging as a consequence of the violation of your assumptions is proportionate to your social status. Okay, and the reason for that is that the- Let's hear that again. Social, the degree to which you can handle Entropy, emerging as a consequence of the violation of your assumptions, is proportionate to your social status. You really do need an interpreter. And I might even get this right, and so some of you will pick it up in the comment section. Because this is not my field, but I've been listening to these guys for a while. It goes, goes something like this. And it has everything to do with what Peterson would say when... You should be the kind of person that can preside over your father or your mother's funeral. What's, why would you say that? Well, because something has been sort of torn apart in your social world, and that's going to trouble you, and that might debilitate you. Now, what happens with a social matrix is we're always watching each other. And when someone demonstrates stability in times of trouble, not losing their head, 
They don't wear all their buttons on the outside that everybody can push. You know, you remember Back to the Future where, um, where the Michael W. Michael W. The Michael Fox character was his name, wasn't it? When anyone would call him Yella or a chicken or a coward or something like that, he'd pop off. Well, once people figure that out about you, if they for any reason want to play with you, when you've shown them where your button is, it's predictable. They will pop off. And so part of what we do as people in community is we look at who doesn't get popped off easy? Who doesn't go off the handle easily? Who is cool when everyone else is losing their head? Who is reliable when everyone else is sort of unreliable? Who can be trusted when everybody else is just sort of acting like an idiot or saying names about other people, so on and so forth? And we tend to push them up the hierarchy. It tends to be what we do. Okay, and the reason for that is that the, the better your reputation, and therefore the better your situation in the social environment happens to be, the more resources you can bring to bear on a problem if one emerges. Mm -hmm. So in other words, why we push other, and we've talked about this part, why do men push other men up the hierarchy? Oh, because again, we don't do this consciously. We don't think to ourselves, oh, I'm gonna push him up the hierarchy so that if, if we have a crisis in the community, he's gonna be more able to marshal resources than I can. We do this, uh, collectively as cities, states, governors, nations, churches, friend groups, teams, all those kind of things. You, you would think that if someone was a real narcissist and super self-centered, they wouldn't want to have a star like LeBron James, let's say the younger LeBron James, they wouldn't want to have him on their basketball team. It's generally not what we do. We want LeBron on our basketball team. Why? Because he's going to help us win. Now, I'm not going to get the ball as much. I'm not going to score as many points. None of that's going to happen, but I want to win. So I want LeBron on the team, and I'm always going to say good things about LeBron because I want him to win. And that's why people pay very close attention to some people deciding that they want to sort of cause a division in the group. Because when people see that, they, they instinctively react like, what's this about? And then they sort of weigh it because it might be that the person that everybody is following isn't what they say they are or maybe is unreliable or something like that. You always got to kind of leave that as a possibility. But then you also have to look and say, well, what are my alternatives? You? Are you my alternative? Will you be reliable? Will you keep your head when everyone else loses their head? You just kind of throw words around when everybody gets a little bit upset? Or you just try to carve out a little something for yourself? So in other words, implicit in human community is a sense of, well, we push people up the hierarchy so that they can help us all. And that tends to be what we do. Okay, now imagine your serotonin system indexes that because we know serotonin is one of the systems that's implicated in the relationship between social status and emotional regulation. Sure. So now the serotonin system has inputs into the memory systems that, are, that have this hyperdependency structure. So now he's talking a bunch of brain chemistry. And for most of us, we're probably really vague on all this brain chemistry, but maybe if you like Jordan Peterson, you'll trust him on this. And maybe if you don't, you won't. He's talking to John Verveke. So if he says something really outlandish, Maybe John Verveke will call him on it. But basically, this whole section and the way Jordan talks is super. 
people who are scientifically predisposed, or even if they don't know any science, because just in our culture, sciencey stuff feels valid. So it sounds all sciencey and chemistry. We might be real skeptical about vague social interpersonal dynamics, but if it sounds sciencey, then it sounds mechanistic. And if it sounds mechanistic, well, then we can believe on it and then we can rely on it and then it'll happen. And they're a tuner. And so that for, you imagine disruption would be characterized in terms of its estimated magnitude by the depth of the presumption that was being violated. And then there's a control. Okay, so now he's, what he's doing, he's connecting the chemistry with the intercultural development and the community. He's pulling these things together. And again, what's interesting is that my my guess is that well, right now this video has well, a video with John Verveke won't have as many as if he talks to Joe Biden, let's say, or Joe Biden, uh, Joe Rogan. It's got 88,000 views day one. Um, of those 88,000 views, how many people have an in-depth knowledge either of the psychology or the brain chemistry that Jordan is just sort of zip, 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 zip running through. I'm not saying that to cast doubt on it. I, 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 I really don't know. He could be making up words. Now, I've listened to Jordan for a long time. I've met him a handful of times. I have quite a bit more experience with John Verveke, quite a few more conversations, have a much deeper mental picture and trust in John Verveke because I haven't seen either of them personally in a lot of situations, but for one, from what I've seen of John Verveke with people, I trust him because he seems like a, a very well put together, competent human being that wants the best for others. So that's a reason that I'll, you know, I'll be tend to be someone who pushes John Verveke up the hierarchy because from what I've seen, I can trust him. Now, he and I have differences of agreements on all kinds of things, but as a human being and as a person, um, more than happy to spend plenty of time with John Verveke, uh, trust him with a whole good number of things, very reliable person. Okay, so back to the chemistry. So John's listening to this sort of as a checker with us. And if Jordan were to say, we're to be just be making up stuff, um, uh, John would say something. But so in other words, Jordan is sort of piecing this whole thing together. Control mechanism off to the side of that. Imagine disruption would be characterized in terms of its estimated magnitude by the depth of the presumption that was being violated. And then there's a control mechanism off to the side of that. Okay, so again, he's talking about the depth. So that's where sort of the brain chemistry, which is physiological, and the depth, which is cultural, social, religious. One of the, so again, I was talking to Malcolm and Simone today, and and they were asking kind of questions about why do I think Jordan Peterson made it so big? Part of the reason he made it big, and I think there are actually many, many reasons why he did, and they all sort of came together. Part of it was his ability to sort of connect the sciencey stuff and the religious cultural stuff and put them together in a plausibility picture that now, people might not be able to check the math in this sort of um, uh, this 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 fact world that Richard Dawkins wants to talk about, 
but people listen to it and they watch his body language and they get a sense if they like him and they say, just at a gut level, probably true. I'll keep listening. Such that the more tenuous your grip on the social environment is, the higher the level of negative emotion that's produced in relationship to the violation of a given level of, of assumption. Sure. Okay. Let's listen to that again, because that was not small. Right. On the social mechanism off to the side of that, such that the more tenuous your grip on the social environment is, the higher the level of negative emotion that's produced in relationship to the violation of a given level of, of assumption. Sure. The more tenuous your grip on the social environment, what does that mean? Well, talk to almost anyone who's had a good upbringing. What do I mean by that? Parents stayed together. It wasn't bad things didn't happen when they were a child. They became trustworthy. So they had sort of the stable internal, they became a very solid person. They were stable. People could rely on them. They got voted up the hierarchy. More and more people could rely on them. People could trust them. They would they would they were reliable, dependable people. That's that's who we've been talking about. Now suppose there was a lot of chaos in childhood. Let's suppose other things happened that you know, maybe you got bit by a dog. Now once bit, twice shy. There's a reason for that little saying. Because once you get bit by a dog, now every time you look at a dog, it's... Now a whole bunch of other people, maybe every dog they ever knew when they were growing up was just A-OK. -okay. And now maybe as an adult they learned that some dogs are more dangerous, but you know dogs well enough because you met all of these good dogs that you kind of even know how to handle a bad dog. You sort of you've sort of figured that out. People are sort of at the fringe of the social community. Well, trouble comes, and they pop off even more. And again, you can, you can see this in a church community. It's not hard to see. And once you make mental maps of picture, so when you sort of announce something in church, let's say, and you already know who's going to pop off. And so you might think, okay, I'd better sort of have answers for these people. Or sometimes you figure, hmm, I'll just be quiet with these people. Because you know what? You read the book of Proverbs. Sometimes answering people is a good thing. And there are times and places for it. Sometimes answering people is not a good thing. Because what you're really doing is drawing more attention to them. And some people just feed off of attention. So you've got this whole matrix, but basically what he just said is that people who are struggling on the fringe, they're struggling on the fringe. And that's sort of a compound thing and it sort of keeps them on the fringe. Now it's not terribly fair, but it tends to be true. Right, on the social environment is, the higher the level of negative emotion that's produced in relationship to the violation of a given level of, of assumption. Sure. Right. Okay. Okay. So that makes that makes sense to you. That seems so to be far, reasonable. Very clear. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 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 Good. Okay. Well. So then I've been working. Well, I'm writing, as I mentioned, a book on, on, uh, on explication of biblical narrative. Now, all of this was preamble. 
<laughs> He's setting up the point, and John's like, okay, I'm tracking with you. It's called We Who Wrestle With God, and I've been working... Oh, with... nice pun on Israel. Yes, yes, right, exactly, exactly. And I discovered that relationship when I did the lectures, lectures on Genesis in, in 2017. So... I've been kind of trying to come up with a technic, technical definition of the sacred, right? And, and this is relevant to research on all. It's very interesting right now that so much is centering around this word sacred. A lot of it, I think, has to do because we're living in a pluralistic environment. And what, what I tend to see in a pluralistic environment is people look for abstract words that can sort of travel between the major different communities and 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 sort of what where we're at right now socioculturally scientifically sociologically is we want sort of we want a word that's not going to offend everyone everybody sort of have has a sense of it but they have they might count different things sacred so if you look at the sacred podcast with elizabeth oldfield That's this question that she asks, what is the sacred? And then she gets answers from different people. And it's a very smart way to go. But she's sort of going in reverse order from Jordan here. Because Jordan's saying, I want to find the sacred. And some of what I'd like to do is figure out how we can have Christians and Jews and Muslims and atheists and the different, different, different little branches of Christianity, have them all sort of at least make some agreements together so that we can live together. And that's difficult because, of course, all of that civilizational stuff is, is, is built into you. And when you bump into someone that has a different set of assumptions... But the Bible, or at least especially the Old Testament, is at least well, potentially something that, well, everyone can agree on. Muslims will look at and say, yeah, I like the Bible. And Christians will say, yeah, I like the Bible. And Jews will say, well, I like those Hebrew scriptures at least. And, you know, we can talk about the other ones that Paul and the Gospels and that stuff comes later. we got some issues with there and the Muslims. They all have sort of their interpretive frameworks that they bring to what well, really starts out with the first five books, the Pentateuch, and then you have different ways of imagining where uh, the prophets, how the prophets relate to the Pentateuch, and in many ways that's sort of the first that's that's sort of the first interpretive structure. The difficulty with these texts is that they're so far away from us, we we can only appropriate them and approach them through interpretive structures. And for us, for many of us, that's that's been all of these levels that have come up. And so when, you know, I think in wave one, Jordan was mostly focused on saving the individual. And now with this arc level, he's mostly focused on, he's thinking about civilizational religion. Okay, what can, can we heal this science religion um, conflict? Can we, I mean, part of the reason he keeps sort of at least giving Islam some attention is because he wants to bring them in too. Canada has an enormous population of immigrants and you know, the United States most sort of come up through the southern border. Canada tends to try to fix their demographic problem by bringing people from all over the world. The difficulty is, of course, that if you're going to have a stable culture, all of this built up stuff 
matters. And so then you're going to have to try and bridge it together up here and point to things down there and try to lend time so that in time the cultures can begin to come together and not sort of tear each other apart. Ah, too. So I've been kind of trying to come up with a technic technical definition of the sacred, right? And, and this is relevant to research on awe, too. So the deeper you go, the closer you get to the sacred. And, and I'm, I'm speaking as a matter of definition here. So, And this has a lot to do with texts. So the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, these are all sacred. Well, how are they sacred? Now, he's talking about sacred in the functional sense, that these, these operate as they operate in a sacred way in the community and and whether or not you believe in any of these texts functionally that's how they operate as you move down your assumption hierarchy and you get to these you call them hyper priors yeah the closer you get to the ultimate hyper prior the 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 the, the, the more you're walking on sacred ground and that's a technical definition now if you What Jordan just did right there, that's another one of these tricks that he has that is really key to the success that he's had. Notice what, just, just listen to what he said here. It's really clever. You encounter the, 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 the more you're walking on sacred ground. And that's okay. The more you're walking on sacred ground. Take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. If I say that in a group of people that are conversant in the Torah, everybody understands it. Well, where does it come from, some of you ask? You didn't watch the Exodus series. It comes from Moses and the burning bush because that's those first five books are way down there at the beginning. They're way there, and all the other other books, they point to those books. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Pointing back to Genesis. They all keep pointing back to Genesis. Genesis was a very smart place for him to start. But notice he said, you know, holy ground, sacred ground. So that's a very broad thing. It's a technical definition. Now it's a technical definition. He's just taken what has been religious and he's just wedded it to, in many ways, the religion of many in the West, which is science. And he put them together. And he did it so fast and without a breath that, now I'm not saying it's an illegitimate move at all. I think it's a tremendously clever move and it's a tremendously powerful move. But it's helpful to recognize it and to notice it because otherwise, if you don't sort of notice it, sort of bring it up into your conscious filter, it sort of comes right in unconsciously and colonizes. And again, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with his point. I just want to point out the tech, the technique. Now, if you encounter something that shifts you in a hyper prior and that's a positive encounter, that's going to produce a corresponding sensation of awe. Okay. Our emotional equilibrium is we like that. But we also like novelty, not a little bit novelty. We like positive novelty, not negative novelty. 
So basically, well, let's hear what he says again when you're thinking about this. Definition. Now, if you encounter something that shifts you in a hyper prior, and that's a positive encounter, that's going to produce a corresponding sensation of awe. These hyper priors are deep. Something happens that moves you in a deep way. Now, this is part of the reason churches do what they do. Maybe you've been formed from the time you were a child with the divine liturgy in the Orthodox Church. Maybe you were formed from the time you were a little child to the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe you were formed when you were a little child to sing certain songs and say certain Bible studies and listen to sermons from the time you were a little, where you were a little person in the church. And then the preacher is able to give you something that is just novel enough, connected enough down deep, and that's positive. It touches your heart and you have the experience of awe. And notice what Jordan's done. Jordan has connected what happens in a church service, and you can point to a Jewish service or in a Muslim service or even, even watching TV, because everybody has to develop some sense of the sacred. If you don't have a sense of the sacred, you can't deal with combinatorial explosiveness in the world. You can't deal with the frame problem because what the sacred does is frames your world and says, pay attention to this. You don't have to pay attention to that. You don't have to pay attention to all these things, but watch this. That's what the sacred does. And we're not necessarily conscious of the sacred. You don't walk around. Okay, got to keep remembering what is sacred. It's what religions do. You can read about it in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy keeps saying, you know, has all of these clues for inculcating the sacred into children. And churches and schools and synagogues and religious communities have been doing this for a very long time. But when someone can sort of connect heaven and earth, because that's what they're doing, you have this experience of awe. And then you're sort of open and a transformative moment can happen. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it'll strengthen who you are. Maybe it'll change who you are. Right. And that I would say that's probably a dopaminergically mediated revelation of possibility. So, okay, so... <laughs> Do you hear all that he put into just that phrase right there? How he connected the science and the psychological and the religious. And he basically said, unlike sort of the subtext of new atheism that would tend to say, you know, when you have that experience, don't trust it. Be skeptical of that experience. Now, again, Sam Harris with his meditation app is sort of going the other way with it. He's sort of using religion in order to, well, make the points of his own religious system. But when this happens, well, then suddenly you heard a point in the sermon or you heard a point in a video or you heard something that's like, pop, revelation. I didn't know that before. I had this experience. Now that, in terms of your mapping of the world, years ago when Jordan was, some of his other videos, he said, and I don't know if it's true or not, but sounds reasonable to me. I've thought about this a lot in the last six years. And now raising this dog, it's been very interesting because you really notice with a dog, if the dog has a positive reaction in a space, he'll like to be there. So one of the things when you're kennel training a dog is tell the dog kennel, get him to go to his kennel, and you give him food in the kennel. You just keep giving him food in the kennel. And the dog pretty much figures out, kennel's a good place. I like my kennel. My kennel is my favorite place. I'll be in my kennel until I 
maybe have to go out to the bathroom because I don't want to mess up my kennel because my kennel is nice. Yesterday I had the dog out and we were looking for uh, wedding venues for one of my sons. And um, we were out in the foothills and just beautiful Northern California. And, you know, I... We had to keep the dog with us because nobody was there to stay home for the dog and we were gone all day. And so my wife and my son and his fiance are talking to the wedding venue people. And I'll manage the dog because if you do weddings, you know that it's almost always the mothers who are much more interested in the whole thing than the father. So I'll handle the dog. You handle the wedding venue conversations. So I'm out there with the dog and... Because this isn't sort of a regular pet dog, you have to, you know, so I do a little training with the dog, but also give the dog a chance to sort of sniff around and nose around because a service dog at some point is going to have to know lots of different situations. So part of the reason you have puppy raisers is you give the dog a lot of different experiences and you hopefully give the dog a good mapping of good experiences and bad experiences. And so he was just sniffing around and and then I saw him sort of leap back after something, and I noticed that there, there was one, maybe it was a maybe it was a berry plant or something. It was sort of a runner. It had all these little thorns on it. And somehow, dogs are pretty thick-skinned, but somehow he, uh, she must have just caught a little bit of that thorn and jumped back. Well, the thing you begin to realize with the dog that if the dog goes into that area next time, the dog has a real sense of good or bad, just sort of blank. So I, I usually, if I, I often bring the dog to church in the morning and I have a little kennel in the office. Dog loves the kennel. Bring the dog into church. Dog loves the church because I let the dog sniff around and play with the dog in the church. Whenever dog's in the church, dog loves the church. Church is a happy place for the dog. Well, you want that. You also want to give the sense of, well, one of the things that we do for these dogs are if, you know, we're always sort of treat feeding these dogs, it's the particular organization that we're working with, our own philosophy, yada, yada, yada. Every now and then you sort of drop the treat. And what you do is you can't let the dog get the treat that you dropped. Well, why? Because someday this dog is going to be with someone and they're going to be taking ibuprofen and they might drop a pill of ibuprofen. And the sound of that ibuprofen hitting a floor is about the sound of a piece of kibble hitting the floor. And then suddenly that dog is on it and eats that ibuprofen and is in a world of trouble. So you train the dog, you don't eat off the floor. And so it's pretty amazing at this point. We've had the dog a few months. You can drop kibble and that dog won't eat it most of the time. If the dog thinks to get away with it, it'll go for it. But the dog won't eat it. And I'll pick up the kibble and good. And then I'll reward the dog and the dog will get the kibble. You have all of these associations. Well, hmm. Let me run some problem. There's something that shifts you in a hyper prior and that's a positive encounter that's going to produce a corresponding sensation of awe, right? And that I would say that's probably a dopaminergically mediated revelation of possibility. So, okay, so let me run something else by you and tell me. So, in other words, all of these systems are together. And, well, church has always been a good place. Everybody's treated me nice at church. You see this all the time. You've got, you know, part of the reason why people from group homes and homeless people keep coming into the church is that, homeless person goes into a store and everybody looks at him and the security guard is watching him. everywhere they goes that homeless the security guard is going to watch that homeless person with good reason homeless person comes into the church would you like a cup of coffee would you like a donut have a seat it's warm in here would you would you like me to put your stuff over here in the corner nobody's going to touch your stuff it's going to be okay i'll keep my eye on it you can just i want you to just sit down and relax 
Enjoy your cup of coffee, enjoy your donut, and be here. Church is a good place. And now almost all the homeless people there. I've never met an atheist homeless person. Um, I'm not saying there aren't any. It's just they're they're pretty tiny number. They're almost all religious. And uh, something happens. Boom, revelation. Now, sometimes people have too many revelations. They've always got a new idea. That's probably, that's the side of the line that I'm probably on. Other people never have them at all. Tell me what you think about this. Okay. Okay, so I've been conceptualizing the sacred as a process, too. So there's a spirit in the Old Testament that... Don't let that one go by too. I've been conceptualizing it as a process, too. That's really important right now in terms of the whole New Atheist movement. Because basically the New Atheist movement said, God is a thing. We can't find that thing. Therefore, there is no God. That's it's basically the New Atheist, there is no God thing. That's, 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 that's what it is sort of at its heart. Now, Jordan is slick. He says, well, what if God is more like a process? Now, this isn't new. You can look at Alfred North Whitehead. You look at a whole bunch of uh, mid-20th century theologians. It was called process theology. And, and they were sort of open to the same idea that, well, there are things in the world like this lens cap. Someone recently said, why don't we ever see the cell phone stand? That's because when I rearranged my office, I didn't need a cell phone stand. I've got a wireless charger over there. And my, my phone is sitting on the wireless charger and it's over there by the USB thing. And it's not easy to grab, but the cell, the, um, my, uh, my lens caps, they're, they're here. God isn't a thing in the universe like a lens cap. And Jordan says, well, what if, what, if, what if God is more like a process? Because actually, in many ways, and this is sort of the deep way that evolutionary thinking, evolutionary psychology, Darwin has deeply impacted our imagination because you can't go out and find evolution. And so you can watch Christian atheists debate like this. An atheist will say, you can't go out and find God. And a Christian could say, you can't go out and find evolution. Evolution is not a thing in the world. I just, I walked by one day and oh, there was evolution. It was there right in front of me. I almost stubbed my toe on it. No, it's not a thing like that. It's a process. Well, what is a process? Well, it's kind of hard to describe a process, but most of us have a sense of what a process is. It's 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 in an environment. Um, John Verveke called it something like the hyper thing that's characterized as Yahweh. And the theory in the corpus is that whatever this central spirit is makes itself manifest in a number of different guises. Okay, now a spirit, Ooh, there's another word. That's a word that doesn't shake us too much because we've got it built into our world and our language in so many different places. But right there, that's where it's sort of the new atheist could, boom. a spirit. No, we don't believe in spirits. You don't? Well, yeah, yeah, well, we do. Well, how, how, what, well, what is a spirit? Well, there's school spirit. Yeah, yeah, we believe in school spirit. We believe it's important. We can't really control it, yada, yada, yada. So, well, there's a beachhead there. So I can't say that there aren't spirits, but there aren't, there aren't, you know what I mean. And then they sort of implicitly point to Descartes. There's sort of material substance and there's spiritual substance. There's no such thing as spiritual substance. Okay, well, what is school spirit made up of? Uh, kind of pushes them. Well, maybe interrelationships. Well, what's a relationship? You can't bump into a relationship. What do you mean you can't bump into a relationship? If you cheat on your wife, you'll bump into that relationship fast if she finds out. Yeah, you will. 
So is there such a thing as a relationship? Well, yeah. Well, what's it made of? Well, made of, it's, 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 it's sort of made of a lot of things that are physical and things that aren't physical and relationships between things. And is a, is a relationship real? Go ahead, cheat on your wife and tell her about it. See how real that relationship is. You'll find out fast. It is a real thing. Hmm. 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 Well, well, let's let Jordan go on. So for no, it's characterized as Yahweh. And the theory in the corpus is that whatever this central spirit is makes itself manifest in a number of different Sorry. guises. So for Noah, for example, God is the spirit that calls the wise to prepare when the flood is coming. And for Abraham, God is the call of the spirit of adventure. And so you see these juxtapositions of narratives that shed a different light on this central spirit with each story, united by the claim that regardless of the surface differences of the manifestation of this spirit, it's reflecting an underlying unity. That's the monotheistic hypothesis. One so in other words, he can point to all of these processes, all, and you say, okay, and spirits, yeah, but Jordan basically says, well, what if there's something underneath all of these? Oh. God, underneath all the gods. So a dependency structure that has a fundamental base or a pinnacle, depending on which set of metaphors that you use. So when I wrote Maps of Meaning, I had started to conceptualize the call of the sacred as something like spontaneous interest, right? Is that? And I've talked about this for years. If you look at Maps of Meaning, he basically says, well, meaning, your experience of meaning is a gyroscope to lead you to, well, let's say truth. Now, again, Glenn Scrivener's video is so good on this because Glenn basically says Christian on the planet in this interview Richard Dawkins says that he has no respect for any Christian debater that he has ever faced who's the most formidable debate opponent that you have had in your career on this question of God's existence I don't think there are any <laughs> never mind atheist Alex O'Connor sat opposite him and he did better than any Christian on the planet ever could do. The questions that Alex O'Connor asks Richard Dawkins are exactly the questions that any Christian would want answered and Richard Dawkins has no answer. Hi, I'm Glenn from Speak. <laughs> Glenn knows how to give an introduction. Well, so things will grip your attention and mm -hmm. compel you in a certain direction. I realized later, after I wrote that book, many years later, that that was equivalent to the more traditional notion of calling. And so, and then I think I missed something in Maps of Meaning that's half of the divine, because I, I really concentrated on interest, and that was sort of under the influence of humanistic psychologists who were oriented towards, say, self-actualization. Yeah, yeah. But there's a corresponding element of conscience. And so the, there are conceptualizations by Cardinal Newman, for example, of God as the internalized voice of conscience, right? Like the source of this. Now, it's really interesting that Jordan, again, comes back to conscience. So wave one was Jordan Peterson from C-16 to his illness in um, that, that sort of took him out of the public picture. I count that as Jordan Peterson wave one. Wave two was sort of a small wave. 
Uh, that was Jordan Peterson coming out of his illness before Daily Wire. Daily Wire was like wave three, let's say. And I'd say maybe ARC is going to be wave four. It's too early to know. But that's sort of how I keep... Um, that's not chronological Jordan Peterson. That's Kairos Jordan Peterson in terms of the waves of his life as a prominent public intellectual. He began wave two talking about conscience. If you look at those videos right after he's, you know, he's looking really rough and he's really not very well at all. Conscience, 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 conscience. That really set in in some of those videos. Then we haven't heard about it for a while. So it's interesting now that, okay, maps of meaning. I saw sort of the gyroscopic meaning as gyroscope pointing us uphill to truth. Now we're going to have to deal with this truth stuff. And when, when I listened to Alex O'Connor in this video, Alex O'Connor is making Jordan Peterson's arguments. I don't know if O'Connor knows what he's doing or this just got built into O'Connor listening to enough. It's funny because when you do a YouTube channel, you put yourself out there and people, let's see, do I still have this button? Yeah. You put yourself out there and people have opinions, they have all sorts of opinions. But there's a funny thing in that if people are still listening to you, they don't know how much they're being colonized by you. You kind of have to watch that because if you listen to someone a lot, they'll colonize you because we're always, we got this map from our children. We're always adding to this map. And so be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear. All that is true. And and there are some people that, um, there are some people that, especially I notice this mostly with just commenters, um, there's, there's one commenter in particular right now who's been going through my back catalog. He always has cynical, negative comments. But I don't, and, and some of the comments are really pretty rough. But I don't, I don't usually do anything about them. And, and that, that, again, these are the things you learn in church because I remember first year I was in this church, I'd gotten warnings about this one guy. I think he's still alive. No longer in the church, hasn't been in the church for years. You know, there were issues with his marriage, his his wife, boy, I don't know how she hang, hung in there. Kids didn't like him very much. Wouldn't be an unusual thing that Sunday morning I'd get, or Monday morning I'd get an email from him complaining to me how I had just preached a sermon and I was thinking about him when I made that sermon. And that I all week I was just focusing on him and I was so directed towards him that all I was doing was thinking about him and how much I didn't like him. And so I crafted this entire sermon against him. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and it was a fairly regular thing that I'd get these emails from him Monday morning accusing me of crafting the entire sermon against him. I just had to basically at some point tell him, I don't really think about you that often. <laughs> I, 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 in fact, if I'm spending all week crafting my sermons only about you, you should feel kind of good about that because that means I'm, you know, you're pretty important to me. But hate to disappoint, but uh, the truth is that people aren't all that different in some ways. 
all of these psychological things tend to be fairly common amongst them. And so back to the point about Alex O'Connor, he's imbibed a lot of Jordan Peterson. And, and part of the reason Glenn Scrivener, I, I love this video, he picks up, he says basically, Alex O'Connor is doing a great job talking to Richard Dawkins because he's putting all those questions in. And what's really cool about the way this dynamic goes here, once a Christian walks into the room, once someone is an adversary and they walk into the room, then all the defenses go up. But, oh, Richard Dawkins is going to talk to cosmic skeptic Alex O'Connor. This is, We are friends. We're just going to talk. And I'm going to give you softball questions. And we're going to... And Glenn Scrivener's right. <laughs> oh, be careful how much time you listen to someone. So when a troll... When a troll... I, j I just find this troll making comment after comment on video after video. And I just think, just keep hating, buddy. Just keep hating. I just think uh, you're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you. Right now, there's a half a dozen or a dozen of you out there, probably even more, thinking, boy, Vanderclay, he never said my name in this whole video, but I sure think he was thinking of me. Do you really think you're always on my mind? superego that's not that's another way of thinking about it but then you could think of yahweh as sort of the dynamic relationship between calling and conscience and to me that maps nicely onto positive and negative emotion because a calling is going to entice you forward with dopaminergically mediated mm -hmm. what would you what would you say indications of treasure to come and conscience is going to say you've deviated off the golden path in okay so there's sort of an opponent processing between the two Calling says, oh, here's the treat. Here's the treat. Let's learn these tricks. Here's the treat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Another part is saying, be careful, be careful, be careful. Might be a trick, might be a trap, might be this, might be that. We've always got these two things balancing. Into the domain of danger and there's something you should sort out. And then, well, you see, in, you see quite clearly in the Old Testament corpus, and it also emerges in the New Testament, that there's a dynamic relationship between conscience and calling. And that looks to me like what's conceptualized as the Holy Spirit, that dynamic relationship. So, And that's a super, in, I, I mean, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. I think that's the Holy Spirit. It's like, whoop, little revelation mm, mm, mm. think about that so then so then i bring in my filters what are where, where are my filters well, way down deep all of this bible that i've been reading for 60 years well who is the holy spirit what does the holy spirit holy spirit reminds you of everything that i've taught you oh so that's kind of the calling it reminds you of everything we call okay and the holy spirit convicts you of sin oh so reminds you of everything, leads you, gives you boldness. That's all that dopaminergic stuff that sort of leads us forward into calling. But the Holy Spirit is also the convictor of sin. Pulls it back, pulls it back, pulls it back. And everything that he'd set up until that point, I'm thinking, yeah, opponent processing, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. It's Holy Spirit, bang! Does it fit? apply my filters look at nothing hmm. i don't know plausible interesting 
Now, of course, the scales, because I know people have found it before for me, but I remember Jordan Peterson, when he talks about the future, says, we're always sort of, and again, I'm using Vervakian opponent processing as sort of a metaphor here. What pulls us into the future is possibility and potential, good things. What holds us back is threat of destruction and bad things. And so it's always going like this. And so the future is always change enough to get the good things, change enough to not let the age of decay eat you, but don't change too much and don't change too quickly and don't hop on things too fast or something else is going to happen. So either have to change or not change, and you're going to have to figure that out. Wow, that's a lot. Well, it's, I've been working on this for months, you know, so yeah. So, so interesting. Now John's going to talk, and now John's going to bring in all kinds of more good stuff on a very different way and a very different level than Jordan. But I have been at this for a little while now, and um, I have some things I need to do, so I have to stop here. And because of my ADHD and, you know, who knows if I'll come back to it, because I've got another half dozen videos in my head that I want to do. But this was cool. This was this was cool. And and so this is sort of the start of this conversation. We're only at minute 22, and it's going to go beyond two hours in the Daily Wire section. So, yeah. So I hope this was helpful. I mean, part of what I've always done is, I mean, when Jordan, how much, how much time did we cover? This started here at minute 18, and we we're at, Oh, now the ad is coming. Minute 22. So I just probably made an hour plus of video on four minutes of content. Did I waste my time? I don't think so. I, because the truth is at the end of this video, I've learned something from slowing them down and thinking through it. And you might say, well, you wouldn't have to make a video to do that. Oh, but the truth is, making a video helps me do it. And then I'll read the comments section and um, and I'll learn more from you guys. So I just think it's a really cool way for me to learn, which is what's sort of been at the heart of all of this for me. So let me know what you think. Leave a comment.